big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we have a ton of new patrons to thank. So shout out to Nicole, Sarah, Judith, Akila, Genevieve, Nana, Rin, Lauren, Anna, and Sabrina. Thank you so much. Because of your support, we're finally able to start looking into new microphones for the pod, and we are so excited and we couldn't be more grateful. And now enjoy this week's episode covering chapters 35 and 36 of Sense and Sensibility. This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Sense and Sensibility, chapters 35 and 36, or volume 2, chapters 13 and 14, which also happens to be the end of volume 2, and I'm glad that we did two chapters instead of three chapters, because otherwise that would have been awkward. <laughs> that would have been, especially I don't have an edition with the different volumes in it. So I did not know this was the end of a volume. So very convenient. Good work, Becca. So convenient. Thank you, Jane Austen. I'm pleased. I'm interested because I know what happens next chapter. And I'm like, that's the next volume. Ooh, Intriguing Molly. Very intriguing. Spoilers. So, listeners, in case you're new here, I, Molly, have never read any Jane Austen before doing this podcast. I, Becca, am a Jane Austen fan and have read many of her works. And if you want to hear Molly read through Pride and Prejudice for the first time, you can check out season one of this podcast. But that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are talking about a set of chapters in which I think the narrator is the most savage that I have yet to see the narrator. It's a combination of Jane Austen being super savage and also Eleanor being at the end of her fucking rope. Truly, I was about to say, at the end of her rope, she is like, nope, not handling this anymore. I'm just going to snap. And I think we should just get into it. I think that's a great idea. Where did we leave off, Becca? Well, we left off. Marianne now knows Willoughby is garbage. And we've now hung out with John Dashwood a bit. Mm-hmm. And he's gotten to know the Middletons with Fanny. They all love the Steels except Eleanor and Marianne. Mm-hmm. And John Dashwood's kind of like, oh, Colonel Brandon and Eleanor should get married. Also, Marianne's looking ugly. Yeah, that was weird. We also met Mrs. Ferrers, Edward's mother, and she was awful. She sucks. And she was nice to Lucy, but mean to Eleanor because she suspected Eleanor of having a thing with Edward. Mm-hmm. And she liked Lucy simply because she was not Eleanor. Exactly. And Marianne had a little bit of a breakdown, but Colonel Brandon's still crushing. He is. He thinks that it's very sweet. I I really stand by this take. Colonel Brandon has a real thing for dramatic women because he wishes he could be dramatic. Mm, I like that. I like that. He has a drama queen inside of him. There is a drama queen inside of us all. That's exactly like 
Colonel Brandon is so misunderstood as stuffy. And I'm like, how can you possibly think this guy is stuffy when he pines the way he pines? One of our listeners did write to us. Actually, I'm not even sure if they were a listener. They might just be like a Twitter follower. But they were talking about how Colonel Brandon is gross for... I I, I did go to bat. Uh, They were talking about how Colonel Brandon is gross for liking Marianne because she reminds him of his previous crush slash love. And I was like, that's not like he might just have a type, first of all. Second of all, have, like, don't come into my house and insult my son. <laughs> <laughs> don't talk to me or my son ever again. No, I, I think there's a very valid critique of Colonel Brandon for going for such a younger woman in this book. Yes, that was also part of their critique. That like that I can get behind as a critique. I kind of just pull myself out of it because it is the time period a little bit. And that's what I said. I was like, this is a different time period. It's not like someone today being that age difference. It's much more common back then. But I do think like I get it. I get why people are grossed out by it, which is why I kind of brought it up up front. That being said, it is not crazy to go for someone who reminds you of your ex. Oh, not at all. People are allowed to have types. Anyway, moving on. (laughs) So that's where we're at now. We've met Mrs. Ferrers and she's the worst. And Eleanor, now having seen how terrible she is, feels like she kind of understands where Eddie's been coming from this all this time when he's been afraid of like what his mother thinks. But also she's a little bit like, thank goodness I didn't marry into that family. <laughs> yeah, every like one of the Ferrers is garbage, except Eddie is like, kind of a normal person who makes bad choices. Yeah, I would say Eddie, I think they're all garbage, but everyone but Eddie is like hot garbage. And he's like lukewarm garbage, you know? I feel like this is an unpopular opinion. I feel like a lot of our listeners probably like Eddie and I disagree. I don't think it's that unpopular to shit on Eddie in this part of the book. I just think that like I possibly am a bit of an Eddie apologist. Sure, sure. But hey, we should put that question to the listeners. Listeners, without spoiling Molly on the book, let us know if you think Eddie is garbage at this point in time. Garbage or hot garbage? An Instagram poll. Like hot garbage as in like Fanny Dashwood. But there's also garbage like good garbage. Like when compost, you're drinking like three White Claws at 10 a.m. Garbage. Oh, sure. (laughs) I said compost. (laughs) Drinking white claws at 10 a.m. So, guys, is Eddie garbage or is he compost? (laughs) Oh my god, that should be a t shirt. Wow, I'm gonna garbage or compost. I'm really going on a spiral with the t shirts. I'm like everything on a t shirt. Oh, I'm into it as we should, honestly. So, Eleanor wonders how Lucy is like buying into Mrs. Ferrer's BS because. It's so obvious to Eleanor that Mrs. Ferris is only being nice to Lucy because she's not Eleanor, but Lucy is not the brightest, and I can't tell if she believes it or not, but... We all have those people in our lives who read way into every interaction, and Lucy is reading so hard into this Mrs. Ferris interaction. Oh, yeah. And she wants to believe that she loves her. I just don't know, like, does she believe it, or is she just talking about it all the time. I'm not going to tell you. I guess who's to say? Whomst. Whomst, if you will. One day, Lucy comes by, hoping to find Eleanor alone. I will say it did say in the book that Lady Middleton set her down at Eleanor's house or at the house that Eleanor is staying. And I like to picture Lady Middleton like 
dropping Lucy off. Like, goodbye. Like a play date. Yeah, like a little play date. Have fun at school. So Lucy is like, glad I found you alone. She starts going on about how much Mrs. Ferris loved her. And Eleanor's like, yeah, she was civil. And Lucy was like, no, 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 no. She and Fanny were both all sweetness and affability, which are two words that have never been used to describe Fanny Dashwood and never will again. Eleanor starts to say that, yeah, it would have been really flattering if they knew that you were engaged, but they don't. But then Lucy cuts her off. (laughs) She cuts her off and immediately is like, no, no, no. They love me. It's great. Oh, man. She is trying so hard to pull one over on Eleanor. And Eleanor is trying so hard to stay polite here. But the savage level just keeps climbing. Like, it starts out very low grade. And it just gets more and more. It's just girl mean. I was discussing this the other day. You know, girl mean is a very specific and precise type of mean. Mm -hmm. Anyone can be girl mean of any gender. But do you know what I'm talking about? Like mean girls. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But... Like, girl mean is, is like, warfare exacted upon someone. So, like, I think girl mean should be used in only the smallest of circumstances. It can only be used when most deserved. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're bullying someone. But sometimes, like, Eleanor is deploying it here. It is well-deserved. And, you know, she's kind of using it on the defense because Lucy is being girl mean on the offense. Oh, yeah. It's time for Eleanor to strike back. Episode 5. Eleanor strikes back. Boom, boom, boom. You gotta stop or uh, Graham's gonna be like, we're gonna have to pay for the song. So Lucy asks Eleanor why she's being so quiet. She's like, are you okay? And Eleanor's like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. And Lucy's like, it would be so terrible if you fell ill because you're my best friend in the whole wide world and I don't know what I'd do without you. And Eleanor is like, I can't even think of anything to say that say to that. So she just like sits there. The amount of time in this chapter, Eleanor just sits in silence to not say something mean. Yeah, to just like let Lucy just prattle on. <laughs> yeah. Lucy is then like, oh, like this is so great because Lady Middleton and Mrs. Ferris are going to visit each other now. So I'm sure I'll be seeing more of Edward. And then she says if Eleanor ever tells her sister what Lucy thinks of her, she should give her the highest praise. And Eleanor's like, I don't think I'm going to be telling her anything anytime soon. Um, Sorry. <laughs> and Lucy's like, well, if Mrs. Ferris didn't like me, then I would notice because she makes it really obvious when she doesn't like someone. Cue her looking at Eleanor and being like, she doesn't like you. A meaningful look. She doesn't like you. Ironically, I feel like Lucy's missing kind of the point. The reason Mrs. Ferris doesn't like Eleanor is because Fanny said that she might have a thing for Edward. Yep. And they think that she's more of a threat. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, Lucy. She's uh, playing some kind of game here. Yeah. She's playing. She's swinging. She's at bat. She's scoring a touchdown. She's. I wouldn't say she's scoring a touchdown. I'd say she's like doing the hey bat about a thing where she's like swinging her bat around, but not I actually. Was, making... I was making a joke about how little you understand sports. Oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> up to bat and touchdown are two different sports. Oh, <laughs> I know. I yeah, you know, she's just trying to get a walk off and call it a home run. Yep. This is embarrassing for us both. Let's move on. That's when you, a ball, right? When you, sp- sorry, what? A ball. It's called a ball when they throw it four times and you don't swing. No. And then you walk. So if you pitch the ball, uh-huh. like there's a strike zone. And if the pitcher gets, if the pitcher throws a good pitch and the 
batter doesn't hit or doesn't swing at it, it's a strike. Right. But if it's a bad pitch, it's a ball. Yeah, that's what I said, a ball. Unless the batter swings at it. Right, but I said if they throw it and you don't swing and it's not in the strike zone four times, that's a ball. And then you have a walk-off. And then you walk. Yeah. I used to play softball. (laughs) Oh, boy. When I was uh, seven. Yeah, I'm not a very athletic person, but I do follow sports more closely than you do. Yeah, I don't know anything. But I did know that. But I did know that. Let it be known, listeners. I did know that. So Eleanor is about to reply to what Lucy had just said when who should enter but the man himself, Edward Ferris. This is one of my favorite scenes in the book because it's so uncomfortable. I'm so excited to see this because he walks in and he freezes in the doorframe and everyone just looks at each other in silence like, oh, no. What's the sound effect for this moment? And then like a Can you get that, Graham? All right, great. (laughs) But there's something about the sheer panic in Edward's face that's so palpable in the way Austin writes this scene. Yeah, she said he would rather turn around and leave again than stay. (laughs) Wait, what's the exact quote here? It's so good. It's so good. It's so funny. It was a very awkward moment, and the countenance of each shewed that it was so. They all looked exceedingly foolish, and Edward seemed to have as great an inclination to walk out of the room again as to advance farther into it. Oh, boy. Yeah. Basically, this is the worst possible scenario. All three of them together in a room with no third person to kind or fourth person to break the the tension. tension. Yeah. And then Jane Austen makes a point there that Eleanor ends up being the one to have to carry on the conversation. Yeah, because Edward... Just he's just too uncomfortable. Edward's lost words. He's lost for words. Lucy is not trying to help anybody. Yeah, Lucy basically it says Lucy doesn't give a shit if everyone feels uncomfortable. And Edward feels too guilty to say anything. Yep. So Eleanor's like, so I guess I'll say things. Yeah. It actually what it said about him was that he's very tender, unlike most men, and he actually knows that he's done something wrong here. And that's why he can't speak words, which is nice. I will give him that. He's a disaster child. He is. He is lukewarm garbage compost. Poor Eddie. Yeah. So Eleanor is being really nice to him, which gives him a little bit of confidence. He sits down, but he's really in a pickle. Eleanor, she's trying so hard to make it easy for everyone. She leaves. She says, I'm going to go get Marianne. And then she goes and stands in the hallway for a little while to give them time alone together. She also just like is so uncomfortable. She has to like go bring another party into the room. That's fair. That's good. That's smart. Although to Eleanor, bringing Marianne into the room is a huge risk. Oh, yes. Because Marianne doesn't know. Yeah, she doesn't know anything. So that's going to hurt Eleanor's little heart. Not only that, it's also like Marianne might say something. About her and Nettie? Yeah, but. But okay, I get that Lucy is not the brightest bulb in the Home Depot. Oh, no, no, that's not the problem. Is that Eleanor's playing a game of standoff with Lucy. Uh-huh. And Lucy's trying to get her to break to show that she actually does care for Edward. And Eleanor is like, nope, don't, don't care. No problems. Why is she doing that? Oh, because she's, you know, trying to preserve her dignity. Is she, uh, would you say that she's proud? It's not in the title, but yeah. She's, uh, uh, okay, she's sensible. <laughs> this is actually not Eleanor's most sensible moment. No. A sensible woman would do more to keep Lucy Steele away from her. 
I honestly don't think that Eleanor has a a sense of self-preservation. Oh, none. She and Eddie both have dug themselves little holes and they just keep burrowing deeper and deeper. And giving each other puppy eyes from like the hole they've dug. Yeah. They make me so mad. Anyway, let's keep going. (laughs) Yes, we'll keep going. We'll keep going. So Marianne comes in. She's so excited to see them both. And she's just like making puppy eyes at both of them. She's the only thing that's ruining her moment is that Lucy is there. Same. Yeah, same. Like, yeah, this would be a good chapter if she wasn't there, but it's not. Then Edward comments that Marianne looks unwell. Rude. Well, I I think. Like, out of concern? Like, are you okay? Sure. But, like, the way it's presented, it made me laugh. Let me find it. Um, <laughs> Marianne's going on. She She's speaking with tenderness, sometimes at Edward and sometimes at Eleanor, regretting only that their delight in each other should be checked by Lucy's unwelcome presence. Edward was the first to speak, and it was to notice Marianne's altered looks and express his fear of her not finding London agree with her. It's just out of the blue, in any event. Yeah, I mean, it's a little rude, I guess. But, like, I think he's just being like, you okay, you you don't look so good. Which, to be fair, she doesn't. So, sure. Yeah. I mean, the implication through these chapters is that Marianne has let herself go a little bit. Oh, yeah. And they talk about that at length in the next chapter. I relate. Listen, before COVID, I was a girl who put on makeup most days. Now, I barely put makeup on to go to dinner. Oh, my God. If our listeners could see me right, right this very instant. Marianne's response to this, though, is like, oh, don't worry about me. Eleanor is in good health and that should be good enough. For us all. This is why I said it was a risk. That's so awkward. And it says Lucy's head snaps right up. She just like looks up and then Edward is like, let me change the subject right now. So he is like very alert and he asks if she likes London and Marianne's like, definitely not. She says she is happier now that he's here and quote, thank heaven you are what you always were. But in my opinion, he is not. I mean, he is what he has always been, but Marianne doesn't have all the facts. Right. He's not what he has always been to their family because to Eleanor now, actually, like as much as she's putting on a brave face, this is a source of pain. Oh, yeah. So he can't be what he's always been. Then nobody says anything. So Marianne keeps talking and she says that Eddie should come back with them to Barton in a week or two. And Edward mutter something unintelligible which Marianne takes as agreement. This is like a sitcom scene. Both chapters were so funny. Picking a funniest quote was very hard. Oh yeah. He's like, oh yeah. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Obligations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then Marianne goes on to tell him that they had the worst day yesterday, but she can't say more about it now. Obviously talking about how much she hated his mom and she wants to gossip with him, but she doesn't want to give Lucy that satisfaction. So she won't do it here. But she asks then where he was yesterday. And he was like, well, I was engaged elsewhere. And Marion's like, you had something better to do than hang out with us. And then Lucy says, him. Perhaps, Miss Marianne, you think young men never stand upon engagements if they have no mind to keep them, little as well as great. What a Willoughby slight. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Marianne doesn't get it, but like we all, and by we all, I mean the readers and also Eddie and Eleanor freeze in our track. Actually, does Eddie know? Eddie doesn't know yet, does he? I think he might know as far as like everyone knows. Okay, okay. 
Right. That makes sense as to why he would like ask how she is. Um, but everyone's like, and Marianne's like, oh, no, no, no. Um, I just think that Eddie, you know, he didn't come because he keeps his engagements. His conscience kept him away. He would never bail on any plans, which she's just now she's digging a hole like everyone's in their own little holes right now. And Marianne first was making it uncomfortable for everyone. Then Lucy tried to insult her, but she's just continuing on saying things about Eddie and Eleanor, but like Eddie would break plans because he broke Eleanor's heart. (laughs) Well, I mean, he hasn't broken his engagement to Lucy, which shows a pretty strong commitment to plans. True, 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 true. And what Lucy just said about you think that men never stand on engagements when they don't have a mind to keep them or whatever. Like she's talking about Willoughby like breaking his commitment. But guess what? Eddie didn't break his commitment to me. Exactly. (laughs) Oh my God, the double meanings. All of the savagery. Honestly, who needs Real Housewives of anything when you have Jane Austen? Real Housewives of the Regency era. I would watch that. That's definitely like a really badly done sketch somewhere. Yes, it is. Actually, I think someone I saw on Instagram, someone posted an SNL sketch that had a few people from SNL with Regency wigs on. I'll find it. All right. So Edward is so uncomfortable with all of this that he just gets up and leaves. Well, he gets up to leave. And then Marianne's like, no, 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 don't go. And she stage whispers that Lucy's going to be leaving soon. Like, you can stay. She's going to be gone soon. And he goes anyway. And then Lucy leaves soon after because why would she stay if he's gone? And Marianne immediately turns to Eleanor. Is like, why is Lucy always here? Couldn't she see that we didn't want her here? Eleanor's like, well, ugh, Eleanor. Eleanor's like, well, Lucy's known Edward a really long time. And so it makes sense that he would want to see her too. And Marianne's like, Eleanor, I know that you want me to assure you of the opposite right now, and I'm not playing into your games. Again, this goes to why I'm like, why do people think Eleanor is perfect? She's like ruining her own life over and over again. She truly is. She truly, truly is. So then Eleanor sits in the room by herself thinking about how she's in such a pickle because she promised Lucy that she wouldn't say anything, so she can't tell Marianne. And I just, I'm really done I'm done with Eleanor and her bullshit because you can like your promise to Lucy doesn't mean anything because Lucy's a trash bag. Also, just like Marianne's going through absolute hell and so are you and you could, you know, help each other. Yeah. Yeah. I'm done with her bullshit. Done with it. Done. I just I can't see her side like her side. Oh, her side is that like she wants to keep her word. She's embarrassed. She doesn't know how to talk about her feelings. I don't know. I mean, I don't always know how to talk about my feelings, but I just can't relate with the fact that she is putting her promise to this girl she just met and who has been nothing but awful to her over her relationship with her sister. Well, I think like she takes her words super seriously as a lady or whatever, but I I think... I know. I don't get that. I think really this is why you're a Marianne and I'm an Eleanor. I get where she's coming from. Sure. Sometimes it's really hard to talk about like being humiliated and having your heartbroken when you're not the type of person who's good at talking about those things. And she's kind of using Lucy and the promise to Lucy as an excuse to not really like be forthright with her sister about all this. Yeah, but I don't get it. You're not an Eleanor. No, I get where Marianne's coming from. But this is also like, you know, it's a fault in Eleanor. She doesn't know how to actually express her own feelings enough, which is 
you know, sometimes this part of the book is read as sort of a chastisement of Marianne and her behavior, but I think it's also a chastisement of Eleanor and her lack of capacity to express herself. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. Well, that is the end of that chapter, which brings us to chapter 36, or the end of volume, the second. Mrs. Palmer has her baby. Yay! Yay! I mean, we kind of knew that earlier because it said Mrs. Jennings got called away to Mrs. Palmer. Oh, right. Yeah, but, you know, little little babe is born. Little babe is born, and Mrs. Jennings is always away with Charlotte now, so... The Middletons simply insist that Eleanor and Marianne stay with them during the days, which is just all formality. It's like nobody wants to be there. Eleanor doesn't want to be there. Marianne doesn't want to be there. Lady Middleton doesn't want them there. Lucy doesn't want them there. Like, it's all bad. I love the part where Jane Austen goes on to be like, they're making Lucy a little bit less active and they're making Mrs. Middleton, Lady Middleton, way more active because Lady Middleton feels like awkward about how little she has to do in her day. Do you think that perhaps they are intimidated by the Dashwoods? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which is so satisfying. Like Mrs. Dashwood, I meant, what's her name? Lady Middleton is sitting there like, oh, I can't be caught not, you know, not having anything to do. And Lucy's like, are they going to see through my guise of being so flattering all the time like should I tone it back simpering ass kisser (laughs) yeah I like that they're intimidated by them because the Dashwoods rock and they suck oh yeah for sure the only person who's not intimidated is Anne and she doesn't know any better yeah and meanwhile she's like 
She's like, oh, man, I would be so happy if they would just gossip with me. And she's like trying to find out about Willoughby and nobody's giving her anything. And she's like, I want them to talk about the doctor and like make fun of me and they won't. And so they just go on. Actually, my funniest quote was in this section. So we'll get there. Yeah. But meanwhile, Miss Jennings thinks it's delightful that all the family is hanging out together. And the only gripe that she has is that she's been spending her time with the baby and everything. And Mr. Palmer doesn't think that his baby is the cutest baby in the whole world. He thinks that all babies are the same. <laughs> I just picture the conversation where he's, she's like, is this not the most beautiful baby you've ever seen? He's like, it looks like a baby. <laughs> like, it looks like a baby. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I cannot wait for you to see who plays Mr. Palmer in the 1995. I can't wait either. I have no idea. <laughs> I want it to be like Bill Nye or something. I will neither confirm nor deny. Excellent. <laughs> so then Jane Austen in her rocking chair makes a reappearance with the first person. She's like, I must tell you now about the misfortune that befell Fanny Dashwood. Now, didn't really want to hear about Fanny again, but we get to for the rest of the chapter. Yeah, this is a hella Fanny heavy chapter because like, fuck Fanny. Fuck Fanny Dashwood. Turns out, When Marion and Eleanor were visiting Fanny, another friend of hers stopped by and made the assumption that Eleanor and Marianne were staying with her. So when she was having a party, she invited them too. Now Fanny has to take them. And also, like, what's worse, the narrator says, is that they might expect her to take them out again. And that would suck. We haven't done one of these in a while, but fuck Fanny. Fuck Fanny. Absolutely fuck Fanny. She still sucks as much as she did at the beginning of this book. She's just been supplanted as the most evil person in this book. Exactly. But even Willoughby, like, is charming. Fanny's just awful and annoying. I was never charmed by Will. Was I charmed by Willoughby? Listeners, you can tell me. <laughs> I don't remember. Like, briefly. Like, you, you, did, you, you liked him, but you were like, hmm, something's afoot. I knew he had a cute dog. He does have a cute dog. That was it. But we haven't heard about that dog since, so. Well, wasn't wasn't John Middleton's response to him fucking up being like, but he has such a cute dog. He's such dog. a good dog. Yeah, 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 it was. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the day of the party. Marianne at this point is like, whatever, I'll do whatever you want. I'll go wherever you tell me to. So she gets dressed and she doesn't give her outfit half as much attention as Lucy gives it within five minutes of seeing it. And Lucy is like, Asking how much each item of clothing costs. She knows how many gowns Marianne has more than Marianne even knows. She needs to know how much Marianne spends on washing each week. She scrutinizes every little part of her. And then she adds a little compliment on the end. The word they used was a douceur or a bribe, uh, which I googled. And Marianne doesn't really, one, buy it or two, care. Yeah, also it goes into detail about how Marianne used to like put way more effort into her appearance and she just doesn't anymore yes yes now marianne is like grab something throw it on yeah like we all have that dress that like is just passable enough to wear to a fancy event but is like really comfortable and if you like pair it with like brushing your hair and putting on mascara and you're like i'm done i'm ready it's kind of where we're at (laughs) yeah i was kind of picturing marianne I was kind of picturing Marianne in like just the slip, <laughs> but I know she put something on. No, no. She needs to put on real clothes or she'll get like an even worse reputation, but. But she like didn't do her hair. No, no. She just didn't like put all that effort in. Mm-hmm. Like, remember we watched the 2005 Pride and Prejudice and Lizzie had all those like 
curls in her hair, which mm-hmm. were so 2000. So 2000, yeah. Yeah, none of that. Yeah. So they're already five minutes after Fanny's carriage arrives for them, which annoys Fanny because she was kind of hoping that they would be late so she would have a reason to gripe at them, which I thought was funny. The party is not remarkable. The music is fine. The people are fine. And Eleanor is kind of bored. So she's looking around when who should she see but the man from the bar? Or not the bar, you know, the place where I thought was a bar. The garment store or whatever. <laughs> from the garment store. The man with the toothpick case. Yeah. And turns out that guy is Robert Ferrers, which we were talking about in the last episode because you said that they referred to him as a coxcomb. And I was like, yes, they also referred to Robert Ferrers as a coxcomb. I thought you were immediately going to be like, that was Robert Ferrers after... I said that, but you you kind of called it. We no, yeah, we went on for a little bit. I did name him. I didn't know his name. I said Eddie's brother. Oh, yeah. So it's Robert Ferrers, and he is not great. I don't like him. So now we know Coxcomb is Regency era for fuck boy. He is such a fuck boy. Yeah, and he's also he's like a flouncy fuck boy. He's like, oh. yeah. What's the, what's the modern day equivalent here? Like like an acapella boy. <laughs> You dare put that in the ears of our own sweet, dear acapella boy, Graham. <gasps> oh, no. What have I done? What have I done? Listen, I got to say, I love. Leave it in. I love the Skidmore Bandersnatchers. When I was a senior, some of my best friends were in the Skidmore Bandersnatchers. And I continue to this day to love the Skidmore Bandersnatchers. But you can't deny that they are flouncy. I'm not denying that you said that. I plead the fifth, Your Honor. <laughs> when I got to when I got to college, this acapella group was the ultimate fuckboy acapella group. So this is where hey, this is coming from. Watch it because I have friends who were in there too. So the way that they changed over the years, though, was when I got there, it was like this was the they were so hot. And I don't know if it was because I was young. It's because you were young. Yeah, I thought they were so hot. As I got older and I started to know more people in it, I was like, oh, they're goofy. Grandma's going to have things to say. I, I mean, leave it all in. Leave I'm leaving it all, it all in. in. I love every single member of this acapella group that I have ever known and loved, obviously, because I just said I love them. See, I was going to name, I wasn't going to name my ex, but I was going to describe my ex like finance bro with full pomade in his mm-hmm. hair that like uh-huh. cost two hundred dollars like nice. like really perfectly coiffed beard like uh-huh. sneaker collection yes like obsessed with things like elon musk mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. like that's who we're talking about here yes yes was your ex in those skidmore bandersnatch <laughs> no he was too cool for things like acapella groups singing that sort of song <laughs> I thought they were so cool when I was a freshman. But here's Robert Ferris and he sucks. Eleanor finds herself wishing that her feelings for Edward were more dependent on who his family was because that would make it much easier to get over him because they suck, all of them. And then Robert starts explaining why Edward is so different from the rest of them. And it turns out that Edward is basically just a weird homeschooled kid. Oh, yeah. No, Edward has no social skills. No social skills. Robert says he refers to Eddie's gaucherie, which means his awkward, embarrassing, or unsophisticated ways. And he attributes it to the fact that Edward had a private education instead of public schooling. Weird homeschooled kid. Doesn't know how to make friends. Listen, I know a lot of really great homeschooled people. I'm saying this as a trope that Jane Austen has written. Oh, yes. Yes. She invented the weird homeschooled kid. She did. 
Robert says that he often tells his mother if she'd sent him to public school instead of sending him to Mr. Pratt, all this would have been prevented. And Eleanor and I both thought to ourselves, oh, if only you knew. Oh, Robbie boy. Oh, Robbie don't know how right you are. (laughs) So then he goes on to talk about cottages. He's like, I heard your cottage is great. And he just goes on and on about how if he had the money to spare, he would build himself a nice country cottage. He's just so ridiculous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's the most over-the-top person. I mean, not the most, because we've got, like, John Middleton and Mrs. Jennings, but he is so over-the-top. Yeah. He just reminds me of guys who say things like, you know, we're never going to fix Earth. It's time to go to space. Yes, he would absolutely say that. He tells this story about how his friend came to him with three plans for a new house that he wanted to build, and he threw them all in the fire and was like, build a cottage. And then he... (laughs) And then he tells another story and starts mansplaining. He's such a mansplainer also. Oh, my God. Such a mansplainer. We knew this about him from the jump at the store because of everything and the way he was looking at them. But he tells them this story. He's like, oh, I I know you can throw a great party in a cottage. This is how I told my one lady friend to divvy up her room so she could throw a great party. And Eleanor, this quote was so good. Eleanor agreed to it all, for she did not think he deserved the compliment of rational opposition. Girl, we've all been there. Yep, smile and nod. Yeah, Jane Austen girls know how to smile and nod through men like this. It's so wild. That reminds me that someone sent us, wait, let me show you. Someone sent us this on Twitter today. Jane Austen really said, I respect the I can fix him movement, but that's just not me. He'll fix himself if he knows what's good for him. And that's why her works are still calling the shots today. Anyway, Jane Austen's a woman ahead of her time. She was. I mean, I saw a meme today that has gone viral that was like, Jane Austen is timeless because she understood there are no two greater horrors in life than having to listen to an unintelligent man and having people show up at your house uninvited. Yes. So meanwhile at the party, John Dashwood is also pretty bored because he also doesn't really like music and he's just like sitting around thinking and he gets an idea. And it's almost a good one. <laughs> when he gets home, <laughs> he says to Fanny, maybe the fact that your friend thought that they were staying with us means that we should invite them to stay with us. And Fanny's like, oh, no, 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 no. That would offend Lady Middleton so much. Like, you can't do that. Like, you know, I would ask them. But also, I was just thinking of inviting the Steels to spend a few days, which random what the fuck? Why? Where did she get that idea? She likes Lucy Steele and was literally like, oh shit, what can I do to get out of having the Dashwoods over? They're replacing them. Literally. And like, that's the thing is that like the Steeles are in this book really parallel to the Dashwoods, except for the fact that like they're worse than them in every way, but because they're worse than them, they're like inoffensive. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Dashwoods are just on the cusp of being threatening because they're beautiful, young, very well bred and penniless, but not desperate. Yeah. They're like the dark side of the Dashwoods. Yeah, exactly. They're like like alternate timeline Dashwoods. They are the darkest timeline Dashwoods. <gasps> Community reference we got there. So she says that they can invite the Dashwoods the next year, and Mr. Dashwood is obviously easily convinced to have the Steels come instead. And he's comforted by the fact that they have plans to invite them next year, and even more comforted that he won't have to, because by then Eleanor will be married to Brandon, and 
they'll be living together and can invite Marianne to be their own guest and just have their own little party over there, which is classic, classic John Dashwood, by the way. Yeah, John Dashwood really repping for the Eleanor Brandon ship over there. He's very predictable. And yes, that. So Fanny invites the Steels. They are thrilled. I really hope that they are like secretly kleptomaniacs and steal stuff from them um, because they are so power hungry and money thirsty. And I know that that's like maybe a stereotype that I'm putting onto them, but I just like they're so evil that I want them to do something bad. I don't think that's a stereotype you're putting onto them. I think that's a stereotype Jane Austen is putting onto them. Yes. So I think that they could, I think it could happen. Mm -hmm. So yeah. But also I'm reading a book right now where someone stole something innocuous and then it turned out to be super valuable and now there's like a whole chase going on. So maybe that's where that is coming from. But what book? Oh, A Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. It also takes place in like this time period. That book sounds super familiar. I might have read it years ago. It is very bisexual and very British. So ideal for you. Yeah, very, very ideal for me. That is my that's my trope that I like to read. So anyway, Eleanor sees the invitation and for the first time, she thinks maybe Fanny actually likes Lucy, not just because she's not Eleanor. I am not so sure, but we'll see. Then Sir John reports back to them all that Fanny is absolutely enamored with the Steels, and he doesn't know how she'll ever part with them. And that is the end of Volume the Second. Ooh. We made it through that the way Eleanor just made it through that. Yep. And that brings us to Becca's study questions. Woohoo! So, what do you make of how Lucy's doing on the London Society? We've talked about it a little bit, but she's like really made an impression on everyone who's not Eleanor or Marianne. Yeah, I think she's a con artist. Yeah. Yeah. The way I'm picturing it is she is taking notes on each person. And how to best slide into their pocketbook and befriending them in the way that suits them. So, like, we don't actually know who she is necessarily because she just, I mean, we do from her interactions with Eleanor. Well, most of what we know about her is that she's, like, all about the self-preservation mm -hmm. and the capacity to make her way through the entire season in London without, like, paying a cent. <laughs> right. And getting her sister to come along with her, who's significantly less desirable. Yes. And who's just there. Yep. So Lucy Steele is her own sort of brand in this book, but I think she's interesting because she really is like the first, you know, significant character in the book of not much money or class. Mm -hmm. I mean, Wickham, but he's well-bred. Right. So it's interesting, first of all, how Austin characterizes her, because I think it's both with empathy and a little bit of stereotyping. Where What makes you say empathy? I think Austin is quite clever and satirical about situations that women get themselves into. And I don't think she does let us forget the situation Lucy and her sister are in. And I think part of that stems from Edward's reactions to everything about his life right now. Yeah, that makes sense. That being said, Jane Austen definitely had some classist instincts and they do come out in the character of Lucy Steele. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And I, I can feel myself when I'm talking about her and I'm like saying like, oh, she's going to steal something. I'm like, maybe examine that. Yes, she sucks, particularly because it's not as though we're rooting for a super wealthy, well-adjusted person on the other side. Like Eleanor right. has no money either. Eleanor's just well-bred. True. But I don't know. I don't want to say anything else, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
what do you make of Lucy's whole interaction with Edward and Eleanor? The fact that she didn't try so hard to do anything. I mean, it was interesting because the only time she snapped at anyone was Marianne. Well, part of it is that Lucy has Edward and Eleanor under her control. She does. Oh, you're right. And she doesn't have Marianne under her control. If she hadn't been there, Edward and Eleanor could have had their own conversation. And same with if Eleanor hadn't been there or if Edward hadn't been there. But the fact that they were all three together... Lucy knew she was in control of that situation because she knows both of their secrets. Edward doesn't know that Eleanor knows about Lucy and him. Marianne doesn't know that Eleanor knows and she also doesn't know about Lucy and him. And Lucy knows everything. But also just Lucy's particular brand of genius isn't as effective on someone like Marianne who's not going to give a shit what she thinks of her or what anybody thinks of her. Her power over Eleanor stems from the fact that Eleanor is saving face. And she's a little self-conscious. Yeah. Yeah. I also think the interaction in general shows Lucy to be aware of what she's doing Mm -hmm. to Eleanor and to Edward. Yes, especially when put against when Eleanor and Marianne move or like go over to the Middletons because when Lucy and Lady Middleton were both being intimidated by Eleanor into acting differently than they normally act like when Eleanor is with Marianne she feels less in control of the situation than when Eleanor is alone all good observations number three we've met Robert Ferrers good old Robbie Robbie Rob the little brother of Eddie how does his persona and self relate to others we've met in the book He reminds me of John Dashwood mixed with John Middleton. It's not a bad comparison. He's he's the worst parts of both. He's also very much a Ferrers. Oh, yeah. He's female Fanny. He is a product of the same family. Yeah. 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 Yes, he is. And and the thing is, like, he's not doing anything evil. I don't hate him. I just am irritated by him, but he's very much that family. He's so Mrs. Ferris. He's so Fanny. And it makes sense that Eddie is nervous the way he is because of the family that he has. They're very into money. Absolutely. They are very, very into money. And I want to draw attention to two characters and how they relate to Robert Ferris. The first one is Colonel Brandon. Hear me out. Okay. We now have a second example of a character in this book that you actually get to know a little, who is a second son of a wealthy family. Oh, uh-huh. So, I mean, you have Colonel Brandon, who had the weight of the world and the tragedy of his life because he was the second son in the family as opposed to the first son in the family, and it really ruined him. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, and this brings me to my second person, Edward Ferrers, is a first son And his life is all pressure. His life is all obligation and expectation. And he hates it. He doesn't relate to it. He doesn't like the family he's from. He doesn't like his place in society. But he feels very greatly that he will inherit this massive estate. And it comes with responsibilities fiscally that get really into his personal life. Mm -hmm. And class-wise as well, which, you know, Robert Ferris keeps talking about how he doesn't fit in on the class level, but that's because Edward is uncomfortable with people of high class. Right. Which he said many times before. And then you get Robert Ferris, who has nary a care in the world and 
literally just gets to coast as a trust fund kid. Granted, he doesn't get to marry quite as well as Edward would, but he's wealthy. He's chilling. He gets to just walk around and have parties in his friend's cottages. So I guess in Colonel Brandon and Robert Ferris, you see the the dark side and the light side of being the second son in the Austin era. Yeah. And Eddie really shows the pressures on men in this time period to provide, to marry well, to inherit an estate and advance the class of their families. And Edward wears that mantle so uncomfortably, which is how he ended up engaged to someone like Lucy Steele. I don't understand how one leads to the other. Like, I get that he's uncomfortable in this world, but how does that lead to absolutely doing the opposite thing that you know you're supposed to do and getting engaged to someone who is the absolute opposite of the person that you're supposed to get engaged to? Really? Like, is he having a rebellious streak? He had a rebellious streak and he deeply regrets it now. Ah. So he's bound not only by his familial obligations, but also by his moral code. And it was four years ago. Exactly. He was a teenager. Right. Right. Yes, I do see. I do see. Not to say any of that's fair to Lucy. No, it's not fair to Lucy. But like, that's how this all transpired. Right. That makes sense. Grimace. Grimace emoji. I think Robert Fares is a place in this book is very interesting, though, because he does really show why the weight of the world is on Colonel Brandon and Edward Ferrers through having no weight on his shoulders whatsoever. Right. Well, and then if he died, if Edward died, God forbid, Edward died, then Robert would be in Colonel Brandon's position. Exactly. Robert would be exactly Colonel Brandon. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Um, We know a complete picture of Edward's family. What does that teach us about him? We kind of already talked about this, but you know, now we have all three members. Right. Now it just makes sense why he's like so meek. I mean, his family is three people who are loud and rude. And I mean, not rude, but they're mean. They're loud, mean, and very comfortable in their station. And he is the opposite of all three of those things. Yes, exactly. So you just, you have Edward in a pickle because Edward just isn't who his family wants him to be. And that's clear from every single member of that family. Eddie's in a pickle. Eddie's in a pickle. We should get a pickle with Eddie's face on it. On a t-shirt. Whatever you want to do, hon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I said Lucy's staying with Fanny. What do you make of how she's being treated by Fanny? We kind of touched on this. And by the rest of Edward's family. Well, I've had I've had trouble because I can't tell, one, if Fanny really likes her or if she's just trying to get out of having the Dashwoods there and also because she's not the Dashwoods, etc. Two, I can't tell if Lucy believes that they like her. But it serves to show that they don't like Eleanor. That's for sure. No, they don't. And I think what's interesting about Lucy is she's reading so deeply into all these interactions. And Eleanor is seeing it from the perspective of they are treating her well to snub me. Yep. What do you think is going to be the interaction between Fanny and Lucy living in the same house? I really hope something blows up in their faces. I really, really, really hope. Something goes bad and wrong. I hope that, I hope, ooh, you know what could happen? I feel like I always make these predictions I think are so smart. And then I listen back to them as I edit after having read the next set of chapters. And I'm like, that was so off. Um, But 
maybe Lucy's going to think, oh, we've gotten so comfortable with each other. I can tell her my true feelings and secrets and tell Fanny about her and Edward. And then Fanny is going to like blow shit up. That's what I really hope happens. I will neither confirm nor deny that. All right. That brings us to the standbys. Funniest quote. Okay, so this is about when the Dashwoods are staying at the Middletons with the Steels. And this is about Anne. Would they have only laughed at her about the doctor? But so little were they, any more than the others, inclined to oblige her that if Sir John dined from home, she might spend a whole day without hearing any other raillery on the subject than what she was kind enough to bestow on herself. God bless Anne. Anne Steele. She's such a mess. Questions moving forward. So what's going to happen with the Steeles staying with Fanny? Is Eddie going to grow a goddamn spine? I'm so sorry, Edward Ferrers, but are you going to grow a spine? I haven't seen Colonel Brandon in a couple chapters and I'm upset about it. So I'd like him to come back, please. And I think that's the main ones that I'm thinking about right now. Who wins the chapters? Oh, man. Mary, mm, um... Who wins the chapters? These were funny. Eleanor. Eleanor wins these chapters. She was really. Really? She was funny this chapter. I mean, what were you going to say? I was going to say Lucy Steele. She got herself quite a good gig. All right. To be fair, she did win in terms of like what comes out on top. She did. She did come out on top this chapter. She controlled that situation. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode of Pod and Prejudice. Listeners, for next week, we're going to read the next two chapters. That's chapters 37 and 38 and the first two chapters of volume the third. Listener, next time, Becca and I are going to be recording in the same place. Yes, listeners, there is going to be a stint where Molly and I are not only in the same place, but for a while, the same apartment. It's going to be really fun. Well, listeners, that concludes this episode. Until next time, stay proper. And find yourself in the middle of an awkward triangle where the guy wants to leave the room. Yeah, or don't. (laughs) Or don't do that. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.